All right, if you would, let's open our Bibles again to Philippians chapter 3. I've titled the message this morning, Losing and Winning. Now, to the great happiness of a few of us, college football season has started. And in a football game, you wonder where I'm going with this. I'm going somewhere. In a football game, it's easy to tell the difference between winners and losers, isn't it? All you got to do is look at the scoreboard and see who's behind. The thing about a football game or any game where they keep score is everybody can't be happy. Somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. You know, there's got to be both the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, doesn't there? And what I hope to show you from our text this morning is that in Christ, there's no losing. There's no losing anything that's of any value. Believing on Christ is a win-win proposition. Spiritually speaking, now we're going to have to lose some things before we win some things, before we gain some things. But those things that we lose, they're worthless to start out with. You know, when you lose something of a negative value, you gain whenever you lose them, right? If you have negative three and you lose that, you're back up to zero, at least you've gained, right? Well, the word win that Paul uses here in our text means to gain, or it means to have an advantage. The things that the believer wins, we talk about winning, it's not things that we win because we outscore our opponent or because we've done so many good things that we win. Everything that the believer gains is a gift of God's free grace in Christ. But before we gain those things, we've got to lose some other things. Well, now, what is it we're going to have to lose? I mean, now count the cost. What is it that you're going to have to lose? We're going to have to lose anything that we think we've done to make God happy with us. That's the cost. You're going to have to lose that. We've got to lose any work of the flesh that we think makes us righteous or more righteous than somebody else. We've got to lose any work. We've got to lose taking any credit for anything we've done that will make God bless me more than somebody else. We've got to lose everything that this flesh trusts in. We've got to lose anything that we trust in except Christ. We've got to lose everything except Christ so that we're trusting Christ alone. We've got to lose so there's nothing left to trust in but Christ. That's what we've got to lose. See, I can't have Christ's righteousness in my righteousness. I can't trust my works and trust Christ at the same time. I can't trust the salvation that I've earned, my salvation, and trust in God's grace too. I can't hang on to my works and cling to Christ at the same time. It's got to be one or the other. So I've got to lose some things so that I gain Christ alone. Now that's a summary of what Paul says in our text. And we'll look at this text and see if it's true. A lot of times I'll come out of the study and chance say, what have you been working on today? And I'll tell her three or four sentences. I said, now if I turn that into 35 minutes, they got me a message. So if I turn what I just told you into 35 minutes, we got us a message, don't we? Well, here's the first thing we've got to lose. If we're going to gain Christ, we've got to lose some things. Here's the first thing we've got to lose. 
It's the wrong standard of righteousness. Verse 4, Paul says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Look at the end of verse 6, Paul says, Touching the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Now here's what Paul's saying. If you think that you have kept the law, and you think any man thinks he, he has done something that he can trust in, he said, I have more. Saul of Tarsus had more. He had more outward righteousness than any of us have. And he was lost as goose in a snowstorm. So obviously, if you have less outward righteousness than Paul had, you're lost too. Paul, well, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was more Pharisaical than all the other Pharisees. And he was still lost. So if any of us are trusting in our works, we're lost too. Because we have less works than Saul of Tarsus did. You know, our problem is, is that we want to compare ourselves to each other, to other men. And the reason that we like that is, is we typically can find somebody who we think has more open sin than I do. And that's, I mean, I wouldn't pick out Saul Tarsus to compare myself to. You know, I'd pick out the thief on the cross or somebody, wouldn't you? I'd pick out Barabbas. That's, that's what I want to compare myself to. We pick out somebody that we think has more open sin than we do so we can feel good about ourselves. Now, maybe that does make our dead flesh feel better. But it doesn't make us righteous. We need to remember this. If we want to compare ourselves to each other, all that is is one maggot comparing himself to another maggot. Compare yourself all you want, you're still a maggot. And nothing more than that. If we would be righteous, we have to be perfectly righteous. We can't be as outwardly righteous as Saul Tarsus. We can't be as outwardly righteous as, as somebody else we might want to compare ourselves to. If we would be righteous, we have to be as good as God. That's the standard. It's the, the, the standard is perfection. Now the thing about perfection is you either are or you're not. You're either perfect or you're not. There's no in-between. And Paul is saying for about Saul of Tarsus, is touching the, the law outwardly? He said, I was blameless. Nobody could say, Saul, you did that wrong. You sinned there. And he's not exaggerating his outward morality. What he's saying is this. Outward morality, his outward morality, Saul of Tarsus's outward morality that nobody could find fault with has got enough sin in it to damn millions. That's what he's saying. Well, if his outward obedience wouldn't save him, ours certainly won't either, will it? So we've got to lose everything that we think we can trust in in the flesh so we trust Christ alone. And that's not going to happen by comparing ourselves to each other. You know, you know when I'll see I'm a sinner? You know what I'll, when I'll see what sin really is, how vile and black and sin I am, how dead and sin I am. You know when I'll see it? When I see Christ. Isn't that what Job said? Oh, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now mine eye seeth thee. Now I see. Now I understand. Wherefore, I abhor myself. See, if I ever see Christ lifted up, I'll have no problem understanding I'm a sinner. And I don't need to compare myself to anybody else. If I compare myself to Christ, that's when I'll see how much I'll need. And I'll gladly give up trusting anything about my flesh 
so I can trust Christ. But we've got to lose this bad standard of righteousness comparing ourselves to each other for we'll lay hold on Christ and his righteousness. The second thing we've got to lose is our law keeping. Verse 5, Paul says, I circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. Now Saul was raised in a home where he was keeping the law even before he could consciously do anything for himself. His parents took him, took that Jewish baby boy to be circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the law said. Eighth day, eighth day you're alive, you're taken to be circumcised and fulfill the law. But now if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath day, well, they didn't circumcise him on the Sabbath day. They moved it to the ninth day. But everybody knew, even though that still fulfilled the requirement of the law, everybody knew the eighth day was the best. You're better if you're circumcised the eighth day instead of the ninth day. Everybody knew that. I had a friend, have, have a friend. He went to a, uh, a private school in England. And uh, he wasn't near, as, as his family wasn't near to well-to-do as the other boys in the school. But they had a school uniform. And the school didn't provide it. You know, you just, you, you bought it yourself. He said everybody had a blue sport coat. But everybody knew there's some blue sport coats that are better than others. <laughs> That's what this eighth and ninth day. Paul wasn't circumcised the ninth day. He was circumcised the eighth day. I mean, this thing was held to a T with this fella. And he says here, he's a, um, uh, well, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself. He was circumcised the eighth day. The law was fulfilled. And what he's telling us here, that doesn't mean they do anything. Circumcision, all that was is an outward sign in the flesh that a man was part of Israel. He was a part of the nation Israel. He could go into the temple. He could take part in the, in the public worship. It was just an outward token that he's a Jew. And Paul learned later on when he saw Christ, circumcision is just a picture. There's no saving effect in cutting off part of the flesh. It's just a picture of the circumcision of the heart. It's a picture of the new birth. Circumcising the flesh never made anybody part of the covenant of God. The evidence that a person is part of the covenant of God is God the Holy Spirit makes them to be born again. And that's what the picture of circumcision is. The circumcision of the heart being the cutting away of the flesh, the, the deadness of the heart, and God giving us a new heart. Now, if you and I would be saved, I'm telling you, we got to lose anything that we trust in, in the flesh. And we've got to be given a new heart. Because God looks on the heart. You can clean up the flesh all you want. And it's still dead flesh. It's dead, stinking, rotten flesh. And God doesn't look on it anyway. God looks on the heart. We can fool other people by fixing up the outside. Can't fool God. God looks on the heart. The only way we could ever be saved is by God's grace in him giving us a new heart. It's not our law keeping. It's God causing us to be born again. Now, third thing we have to lose is trusting in human bloodlines. In verse 5, Paul says, I circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews. Saul of Tarsus was a Jew through and through. He was no half-breed. His mama and daddy were both full, full-blooded Jews, full-blooded Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. And he was too. 
He was a full Jew through and through. And not just any Jew. Paul is just pointing out all these, these you know, things that the flesh likes, likes to look in. He said, I was the tribe of Benjamin. The beloved tribe. Meh, you know, these other tribes, they, you know. They, they, call, they caused Jacob so much trouble. He's you know, descended from not Benjamin. Oh, Benjamin was the beloved son. Remember Jacob said, Though those now these are his sons. He tells his ten sons. I mean, I love these, I love they're my sons. But you boys aren't taking Benjamin nowhere. <laughs> you can go to Egypt if you want. You're not taking Benjamin. I love Benjamin. I mean, he's so dear to my heart. Saul says, that, That's my tribe. That's my tribe. And he's telling us here, I was still lost. I mean, he's still part of the tribe of Benjamin, but he's still lost because human bloodlines gave him no spiritual advantage. Here's why I point this out to you and me. You know, we come here as families. I mean, I just love, I'm so thankful. I I watch people come in, their families and families are sitting together. We come in as families. Our parents are bringing their children and we got grandmothers sitting next to their grandson. I mean, I just, it's families. I'm so thankful that there's just nothing better for a family than worshiping God together. I'm so thankful. But here's why I say this now, because this is how this applies to you and me. And you, you kids listen to me now. I know what I'm talking about because I was your age sitting in the pew. I was your age going to school and being out in the world, but being taught these things like you're being taught from the pulpit. The salvation of our souls can't come from human bloodlines. The only thing that comes from human bloodlines is sin. That's what we got from our fathers, a nature of sin. Salvation is only found in the blood of Christ. You can trace your lineage back however far you want, you know, and find some good people, you know. This is what we do. We trace our lineage. We see, you know, somebody real good, and then we see somebody bad, we kind of hide them, you know, and just talk about, I'm really this person. But salvation can't, I don't care who's in your family tree. Salvation doesn't come that way. It only comes by the blood of Christ. I love our children. I mean, you. I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. I love to I love to see you on Sundays and Wednesdays. I love to hear about your accomplishments at school and the things that you're doing. I mean, I, I just, you really impress me. You're just so impressive and I love you. But you're no better, you're no better than anybody you go to school to that's just with, that's a complete heathen, that goes to, had no religious affiliation whatsoever, or somebody that you know is just in, in religion that's it's so wrong, you know how wrong it is, you see it. Listen to me now. You're no better. You're no better. But I'll tell you what you are. You're just as sinful, just as lost by nature as they are. But I'll tell you what you are. You're better off. You're being taught the scriptures. Oh, what an advantage it is to be taught the scriptures. Young Timothy, you imagine that boy. He was your age, growing up in a home where his mother and his grandmother taught him the scriptures. And... He was like you. Sometimes he was kind of interested. Sometimes he wasn't. Sometimes he's thinking about going out and playing baseball. Just one of whatever games the Jewish boys played at that time, you know. But those scriptures, Paul said, are able to make you wise unto salvation. One day, God the Holy Spirit took that word and planted it in his heart and gave him life to believe. That's why I pray for you. But you need to remember this. Salvation's only in Christ. It can't come from my mom and daddy being believers. It can't come from my friends or my relatives being believers. 
Salvation is only found in the blood of Christ. His blood washes away our sin. We need Christ. We need to gain His blood, don't we? I already got my daddy's sinful blood. What do I need now? I need Christ's blood. I need His blood to put my sin away. All right, here's the fourth thing. We've got to lose this now. We've got to lose trusting in the zeal and sincerity of our religion. We ought to be zealous. We ought to be sincere, but don't trust in it. Look at verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. I mean nobody could have been more sincere and more zealous than Saul of Tarsus, could they? Nobody could have been. If somebody disagreed with Saul, if they didn't, if they didn't keep that religion the way he said they ought to, Paul didn't just try to teach them. He didn't just scold them. He didn't just talk bad about it behind their back. Saul killed them. I mean, he put them to death. That's where he was going when the Lord revealed himself to Paul. He was on his way to throw men, women, and children in jail, into dungeons. You know, people like that today, they'd kill you for disagreeing with them. Now, like I said, we ought to be zealous and we ought to be sincere. We need to be sincere about believing Christ. We're not playing games here. I don't want to be a hypocrite, do you? About faith in Christ. I want to say I believe him. I want to really believe him. I want God to give me the heart to to believe him. And we ought to be zealous to serve Christ. We ought to be zealous to serve one another. And you all are. I'm I'm so thankful that you are. I mean, really, you are. There was a pastor here visited recently. He told me, I hope you appreciate that congregation. I said, oh, I do. (laughs) Thank God for them every day. But don't trust in that. See what I'm saying? Don't trust. Trust in Christ. Salvation is not found in our sincerity. Salvation is found in sincerely believing Christ. Look back at Psalm 69. Salvation is not found in our zeal. I mean, you consider who our Savior is. We ought to be zealous in, in serving Him and, and preaching Him and seeking Him and believing. We ought to be zealous in that. But our zeal doesn't save anybody. It's the zeal of Christ that saves His people. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 69. This is, I told you we were going through the Psalms. When, you, when you're reading the Psalms, read them first as if as Christ Himself was saying them. That, that's the first application. It's obvious here. This is Christ speaking. Verse 7. Because for thy sake I borne reproach. Shame hath, hath covered my face. I become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. Christ's zeal for his people, that made him go to the cross. That made him bear their reproaches. That made him bear their shame. It was his zeal to go to the cross and suffer and die for his people. That's what caused him to suffer. And that's our salvation. It's Christ's zeal to save his people from their sins. The zeal and the sincerity of Christ to do everything it took to save his people from their sin. That's how we're saved. And we got to give up trusting in our zeal and trust him. That one who was so zealous to suffer everything it took to save his people from their sin. Now if we're going to be saved, we got to lose all those things. But you know what? When you lose trusting in those things of the flesh, you actually gain. Look at Paul says in verse 7. Yea, doubtless, 
And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and to count them but dung that I may win Christ. And Paul says, after I met Christ, I count all that religious works, all that religious activity, all that religious heritage that I used to trust in. I used to be so proud of it. Now, I count it but dung. Manure. That's what he means. Manure. I don't count those things as advantages anymore. I count them as disadvantages. And since they're a disadvantage, I gladly gave them up so I could have the advantage of having Christ and Christ alone. I'm willing to give up anything of this flesh that I could have Christ alone. Now, if you and I would be saved, we're up to the same thing. We have to give up everything that we used to trust in. And it ought to be easy for us to give up trusting in our flesh because the works of our flesh are nothing but dumb. Now, the gospel is just is good news in every way that you can think of it being good news. This is a pretty good trade, don't you reckon? Give up the dumb of who and what I am and what I've done. Give up that manure that I could have the perfection of Christ. That's a good trade. That's what God gives his people. It's, it's dung. Uh, the, the dung heap that they had in, in Jewish cities, that, that was a, like the garbage dump, you know. I don't know about you, but when I lose garbage, I actually gained, haven't I? I'm better off without it. There's no advantage in the hanging on to garbage. You're just you're better off when, when you throw the garbage away. Our our garbage pickup is on, on Thursday mornings. And on uh, Thursday mornings I hear those garbage trucks going up the street. And I'm so happy. That, that garbage can be gone. That can's empty. I put some more garbage in it. Janet loves to throw stuff away. Boy, that can's empty. We're throwing more stuff away. I'm glad that garbage is gone. After a week, it starts to stink, starts to look bad, smell bad, you know. That's what Paul means here. The, the word loss he, he uses means damage. He says, I'm better off without all this damage. If I get rid of all this damage in me, I'm better off. And I thought it was interesting, the writers, when they talk about this dung that Paul writes about here, they, they call it rubbish. Now I know they're, they're, they're trying to be polite, they're trying to be genteel, they're trying not to be gross, but uh, I, I think that's too polite, in my opinion. It's too polite. Because calling this rubbish, it takes the edge off the gospel by not painting the picture of who we are as ugly as it really is. The word dung that Paul uses here, this is the definition of it. It's the excrement of animals and it's the dregs at the bottom of the dung heap. Now, in case you don't know what the dregs at the bottom of the dung heap are, let me tell you. They throw their trash, their animal waste, their human race waste, you know, it piles up in this big pile. Well, you know, the weight of this stuff starts pressing. The first stuff you threw away, all this other stuff's pressing down on it, right? And it's just naturally decaying, and there's pressure on it. There gets to be a little heat from the pressure on it, and it starts to decay. And of all the stuff on the dung heap, that, oh, that bottom layer. Ooh, ugh. I mean, it looks bad. It just, it smells so bad. It just, ugh. 
That's you and me. That's our works before God. It's the bottom of the dungeon. We're not talking freshmen over here. This is the stuff that drags at the bottom of the dung heap. It's disgusting. Are you going to take that stuff to God? You wouldn't take that to each other. You know, when you're, uh, a lot of us love dogs. When you're house training a puppy, and that puppy makes a mess in the house, what do you do? You tell it no, and you hurry and clean it up and throw it away so it doesn't stink up your house, right? You don't save that and put it up on the mantle like a trophy. You don't save it and, and put it on a centerpiece, a centerpiece of your table. When you have friends come over to eat and put that puppy mess there in the middle of the table and make it, you know, the centerpiece of the table that you're, you know, you're all eating around. You're fellowshipping around. You're not going to put that, that there. You're not going to take that and put it around your neck and, and with a necklace, are you? Or make a little bracelet out of it. You're not going to do that. You get rid of it as fast as possible. That's how we should treat all of our works of the flesh. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. I'm ashamed of myself that I want to trust in those things. Get rid of them as fast as possible. I don't want to decorate myself with the dung of my works. I want to be found in Christ. That's so shameful. I want to get rid of all those things so I can trust Christ alone. All my religious works, they're doing nothing but damage me. I want to get rid of that damage. That I have the life and the health and the perfection of Christ. That's what I want. And when we lose those things, everything that the flesh trusts in, now we're going to gain some things. We're going to win some things. The first thing we're going to gain is to be found in Christ. Verse 9, Paul says, I count all these things but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him. Now, no believer is satisfied with an outward show of religion. We're not just satisfied with an outward show of, of morality. I hope we are moral outwardly, but I can't just settle for that. I can't trust in that. Not after I've seen Christ, I can't. No, after I've seen Christ, I can't trust in, in things about, I trust him and him alone. And the only way that a believer can be satisfied, be confident, is to be found in Christ. When God comes looking for me, tell you where I want him to find me. Only in Christ. So when he sees me, all he sees is Christ. I don't want him to see me and Christ. I just want him to see Christ. Find me in Christ. Look on me in Christ. I want to be saved from my sin by being in Christ. Like Noah was found in the ark when the rain started falling. I want to be saved from my sin. I want to be saved from God's justice by being in Christ. Like the manslayer was found by the avenger of blood in the city of refuge. That's where I want to be. I don't want to be found outside, do you? I want to be found in Christ. I want to have life in Christ. The same way a baby in the womb, gets life from its mother. That's I want to be joined to Christ so I have his life. I want to be found in Christ. If I'm in Christ, I have union with him. I want to be found in Christ so that I did everything that he did as a man under the law. When he obeyed the law, I did too. 
because I was in him. I'm righteous because I obeyed the law in Christ. I want to be found in Christ so that when he died, I died in him. If you've already died for your sin, justice isn't looking for you anymore, is it? Justice is satisfied. Well, if I died in Christ, God's justice is not looking for me. Justice is already satisfied. I want to be found in Christ. Salvation is not found in the outward and the flesh now. It's a vital union with Christ. It's so vital. This union with Christ is so vital you can't be saved without it. But if you have it, if you have this union with Christ, you can never die. It's like the vine and the branches. How the branches get their life? By being in the vine. How is it we have life spiritually? By being in Christ. That's where I want to be. I want to gain that. Don't you be found in Christ? The second thing we gain is Christ as our righteousness. Verse 9 says, Be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, by faith. Now one thing the scriptures make clear over and over and over and over again, righteousness cannot come by our works of the law. It's by the righteousness of Christ. It's by the faith of Christ to obey the law for his people and make them righteous. And that's received by faith in Christ, by believing he's all I need. It can't come by our works of the law. Romans 3.20 says, by, by the law is the knowledge of sin. You can't earn a righteousness by the law. If you try to keep the law, you know all the law's doing? Showing you how you don't keep it. Showing you how sinful you are. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. That's the sum of the whole law. By the deeds of the law, nobody's going to be justified in God's sight. Galatians 3.20 says the same thing. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it's evident. For the just shall live by faith. The just aren't live by the law. They live by faith. By faith in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ earned a righteousness for his people by his obedience to the law. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 that salvation is by grace through faith. Now salvation is as simple as this. It's trusting that who Christ is and what he did, that's all it takes to save me. He's all I need. Now I know you, you can't do that unless God gives you the heart for it, but salvation is not hard. It really is that just trusting that Christ is all I need. To be saved. And faith in Christ is not a lose-win proposition. I'm talking about here now we got to lose some things before we win some things. It's not a lose-win proposition. Well, i got to lose one thing that's got some value to it. So I gain something else that's got more value to it. And i got to debate this thing I'm losing. It's got some value. Do I really want to give it up? That's not what we're talking about here. Faith in Christ is a win-win proposition where you lose your filthy rags of righteousness. Those filthy rags of righteousness that we try to, to produce by our own works, they're filthy. They're defiled with sin. I mean, it's just, it's gross. They don't cover us. They don't cover our nakedness. They don't cover our shame. They just accentuate our shame. Now you're going to gain when you lose that, aren't you? And then you gain again 
when Christ gives you his, his righteousness, when he is your righteousness. That's a win, isn't it? What a gain to be given the very righteousness of God's Son. Well, the third thing we gain is eternal life. Verse 10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, salvation is knowing Christ. Knowing him, whom to know is life eternal. The Savior said, John 17, verse 3, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now, just like we looked at in our lesson this morning with, with Judas, salvation is not knowing about Christ. Salvation is not knowing that Christ was born in the flesh roughly 2,000 years ago. About 33 years later, he died on a cross. Those are just historical facts. That's not knowing Christ. You know, many people, they know things about Christ. They know many doctrinal truths from the Scripture. They know the doctrine of the atonement. Somebody's got to die to pay for sin. That's not salvation. Salvation is knowing and loving Christ who is the atonement. Trusting that he's my atonement. Many people know Christ's way with sinners on earth. They, you know, everybody wants to, wants to be you know, forgiving and gentle and kind like Christ was with sinners on earth. Many know his way with sinners. But that's not salvation. Be nice as you want, but that, I mean, I hope you are, but that's not salvation. Salvation is knowing Christ who is the way, who is the way of salvation, who is the way of righteousness, who is the way of life. A saving knowledge of Christ is a loving union with Christ, like a husband knows his wife. And that wife knows her husband. They're joined together in union. And I tell you, if I know Christ, this is a saving knowledge of Christ. If I know him, I know I have peace and rest for my soul in trusting him. I know it. If I know Christ, I have a saving knowledge of him. This is what I know. I know he didn't come to try to do anything. He didn't come to try to save anybody. If I know him in a saving knowledge, this is what I know. He came and he saved all of his people from all of their sin. And I'm right happy about that. That's who I can trust to save me. I have no doubt about. There's no doubt that everybody for whom Christ died is righteous and justified and will be glorified with him. There's no doubt about it. Because I know the one that died. He can't fail. If I have a saving knowledge of Christ, I don't have any doubt about this. His blood blotted out all the sin that the Father laid on him. I have no doubt his blood paid the entire sin debt. As enormous as that debt was, all of the sin of all of that innumerable number of God's elect, all of it was laid at one time on one man, on Christ the Savior, and his blood put it away forever. I know that. Because of whose blood it is. <laughs> it's the blood of the innocent one. If I know Christ, if a saving knowledge of Christ, I hate my sin. I hate it. I hate it. I hate that I think the things that I think and do the things that I do and want the things that I want to do. I hate it. But I don't despair because I know who my mediator is. And he's pleading his sacrifice for my sin. He's seated on the right hand of the Father with the evidence in his hands, in his feet in his side, and in his head. 
how he was crucified. Those scars are visible to the Father. And the Father looks at those scars, knows that they came from that sacrifice, and he's well pleased. All is forgiven. If, if I know Christ, I know this, the Father's going to accept his mediation because he accepts his sacrifice. And that takes all the pressure off, doesn't it? I don't have to establish my righteousness. I don't have to make up for my sin. Just trust Christ. Just trust he's enough. You see, salvation is a person. It's a person. Salvation is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ who is become my salvation. When the children of Israel left Egypt in Exodus chapter 15, this was the song, Moses' song of deliverance. He is become my salvation. It's not just I was delivered from Egypt. That's not my salvation. He has become my salvation. Salvation is knowing and loving a person. I've said this so many times. I, I relate this to marriage. You can read a lot of books on marriage. Husbands, you can read, read a lot of books on what you ought to do as a husband. How to make, a, how to make your wife happy. You can have that head knowledge up here. But I'm telling you, you don't need one of those books, not one of them, if God will put this verse in your heart. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. If you love her, you don't need any more instruction than that. To me, marriage is Janet. I don't need those books. It's, and I, I think I'm safe in saying this, that to her, marriage is me. It's a person. It's not an institution. It's, it, salvation is the exact same thing. It's a person. You don't have to be. You just look to him naturally. If you love him. You want to give up the, the dung of your works. And trust him naturally. If you love him. That's why Paul said. I know whom I have believed. There's never been a greater theologian ever lived than Paul. We reckon. And he didn't say I know what I believe. I know whom I have believed. And that's eternal life. Oh if I could gain. Christ for my soul it's worth giving up anything any credit to this flesh to have the gain of being found in Christ oh to have in him that's my prayer for me and you alright let's bow together Father how we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ how we thank you for a complete full righteousness and justification and salvation in him. We thank you for this message of the gospel, the good news of who Christ is and what he has accomplished for his people. And Father, I pray that you take your word and that you would apply it to each heart here this morning in mercy and grace, that you would take it and reveal Christ to us, that we might trust him, believe him, be found in him you promised your word will accomplish the purpose whereunto you sent it it cannot fail father i pray you'd send it forth in a purpose of mercy and grace enable us to see the glory of christ our savior father it's for his glory and his sake we pray amen all right sean Okay, if you would, turn to song number 236 and stand as we sing Amazing Grace. Mm -hmm. 